Hey, so we're going to jump into the Bible, and uh, we're going to continue a series that we started, I think it's like six weeks ago now. So if you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand. We have ushers that would love to get you a Bible. Uh, before we jump in, I want to pray, and then we'll get to work. So we've been in a series that we've been entitling uh, The Image of God, and what we've been looking at is, like, within the context of the idea of the image of God, are a variety of subjects and topics that have to do or play into this broader concept of the image of God. And the reason why we've been looking at these is that we've been recognizing that within our culture there are certain ideas and concepts that get a lot of, uh, lot of heat and they create a lot of uh, um, challenge and difficulty and hardship. Uh, they're oftentimes the, the very center point of uh, conflict amidst uh, many. And one of the things that we've recognized is that each one of these subjects that, we'll be, that we have been looking at, that we'll continue to look at uh, for this week and the next week, and then we'll be done, is the subject of race, gender, sexuality, and life. And uh, we've recognized that a lot of cases, first of all, these are Bible subjects. The, the Bible addresses these, and we want to allow um, the time that we have here to think carefully, think critically of what the Bible has to say about these things. And so that let that inform and shape, or at least uh, give us some understanding is how to think about these things so that when we're in the context of a really angry Twitter battle or a bunch of uh, disgruntled Facebook people that are just ranting, that at least somehow we would have some form of understanding as to what Scripture says about these things so we can think and act rightly uh, according to the wisdom of God within a culture in a lot of ways that is uh, uh, constantly in conflict over a lot of subjects, uh, these being primary ones. So with that, let me pray, and then we'll begin to jump in and take a look at uh, today, the subject of life, and I'll unpack that more in just a moment. So let's pray. We'll jump in. God, we ask you right now that you would uh, give us understanding, and I pray, Lord, that you would help my words, the things that I have to say, God, to be things that are in line with your heart and your words of wisdom. And God, more importantly, what we want more than anything today is not just simply to have information and knowledge, but God, we want wisdom. Uh, we want to be transformed. God, we want to be agents that bring about wisdom and transformation in our world and not to simply contribute to arguments and endless frustration and grief and anguish and confusion. Uh, so God, transform us. Fundamentally, uh, change us, God, to be people that reflect you. And we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I want to jump right in, and uh, one of the questions that we've been asking all along throughout the series is, what, what would our community really look like uh, if we were truly a group of people that reflected the image and the character and nature of God? Next slide, please. Um, uh, in, in terms of this world, and not simply give ourselves over to cultural idols, such as race, gender, sex. What we've been saying is that each one of these items can be elevated to a position in our lives to where they are ultimate. They take the place of God. Uh, they're substitutes for God in our culture. And I think it'd be safe to say that, for example, sex uh, has, without question, played a viable substitute for God in our culture. So that I think it would be safe to say that one of the main central idols within uh, American society is sex, without question. We are a highly sex- sexualized uh, society. Um, it plays into every part of society, in music, in media, in everything around us. It's one of the things that a lot, a lot of ways contributes to rape culture and all sorts of other forms of sexual dysfunctionalities within our culture at large. And from a biblical perspective, the reason why is that we would look at that and assess it's because something that's good, like sex, 
has been elevated to a level of God. It's replaced God. It's become an idol, uh, a, a powerful source of life and uh, oppression over the culture at large. And so rather than listening to the voice of God to give us counsel and guidance and wisdom, we listen to the impulses that sex promises and the lies and oftentimes the promises that it makes. And as a result of that, uh, we have all form of dysfunctionality within the culture at large. Again, that's just one thing. I'm not going to talk about that any further because we did a whole two weeks on looking at that. So that's just simply really asking the question, what would it look like if we truly were a culture of people that really, truly had Christ as king of our lives and not simply some of these elements uh, playing into the role of, of God? So with that, I want to kind of move on to the very next thing, which is sort of three propositions or three ways to think about what we've been looking at over the past several weeks. All right, next slide. Um, three points. One is that all human life is actually created in the image of God. And the reason why human is actually in parentheses is because I want to distinguish life in general, meaning like plant life and uh, whale life and kangaroo life and life in general from human life, which is vastly distinct in Scripture is that the Bible says that humans, unlike any other form of life, which, you know, there's billions of forms of life, life forms throughout um, the world that we know, or the many that we obviously don't even know about, um, the, the Bible says that life, human life, above and beyond all of the forms of life, actually bear the image of God. So there's something distinct and unique about human life that's radically distinguished from all of the forms of life. So um, what we do know, first of all, is that all human life is created in the image of God. And so the second proposition kind of dovetails into that in that all human life therefore because it bears the image of God it is therefore valuable so your value as a human being is directly linked to the fact that you as a human being reflect the image of God that's what the Bible teaches and therefore as a result of that is worthy of dignity value and respect we know this intrinsically because when people disrespect you we don't take it lightly if someone walks up to you and says something horrible about your body figure or about your face or about something that you're already insecure about, you're not happy. You don't walk away satisfied. You don't walk away whistle and excited. You are offended because somebody has disrespected you. They've not shown you value. Uh, they've not shown you some level of dignity. But here's the thing. Here's the rub. Because a lot of us, even though we know intrinsically we want dignity, value, and respect, uh, often as we have this challenge of showing it to others. And what ends up happening is uh, injustice. Uh, injustice takes place or unjust actions take place and we bring brokenness and further brokenness within our culture and society at large. So that leads us to the third proposition or the thing that kind of all ties together is this, that in scripture that when individuals uh, and or society, they reflect the values of God uh, toward human life, uh, by ascribing worth, dignity, and respect to all, this is known as justice and or righteousness, or and righteousness, both of these things. We'll look at both of these. So one of the things I really want to tr drive home today is over the next two weeks, today beginning kind of a two-part thing, uh, which is kind of connected to the rest of this whole series, and uh, we'll wrap this up next week, is I want to look at the subject of life. But the way that I want to look at the subject of life from like the womb all the way to the tomb and everything in between with regard to the refugee uh, situation. Um, again, for example, I don't need to spend a lot of time talking about this, but right now, as a major point of crisis and angst and frustration uh, between a lot of people in America right now is the subject of, of refugees. What do we do with them? Immigrants. 
Do we marginalize them? Do we keep them out of the country? Do we show compassion? Do we welcome them? Do we come to a city of refuge? Uh, do we uh, exact laws? How do we, how do we address that? So next week, I'm going to specifically address that subject. But before we get to that, I want to at least lay a foundation, a groundwork to begin to think about that, because I think today, uh, if, if we jump into that without kind of laying the groundwork of today, I, I think we'll kind of short-circuit the whole process. So just bear with me. We will get to that subject next week. I think it's a really important subject to understand, because a lot of ways, right, it's been divisive. It's been divisive for our nation. It's been divisive for, you know, your Facebook friends. It's been divisive perhaps even for your family members and or roommates. Um, but the point is, is I want to look at the subject really of justice and righteousness, because we can't really talk about the subject of human life without talking about the subject of justice and righteousness, or at least how God views this subject. So I'm just going to give you an outline of what we'll look at today, and we'll begin to look at it one by one. First of all, we'll take a look at the meaning of justice and righteousness. Secondly, we'll take a look at the significance of justice, or uh, the, the, how it plays out within Scripture. And then thirdly, we'll ask the question, how do we become people who actually practice righteousness and justice? How do we become those people? The very people that we want others to be towards us, but oftentimes we uh, aren't towards others. So how, how do we become that? So let's first of all jump in and ask the question, what is the meaning of justice? What is the meaning of justice? So um, the Hebrew word for justice is a word called mishpat, mishpat, um, M-I-S-H-P-A-T. And it occurs around 420 or so times throughout the uh, Hebrew Old Testament. Um, as it says up here, most basic meaning is to really treat people with equity, uh, equ- equitably, um, and extends to uh, acquitting and or punishing all on the merits of case, uh, regardless of race, social status. And this is oftentimes coupled with another word, which I've already mentioned, um, but throughout scriptures, probably at least 200 times, perhaps even more, uh, these two words actually come together over and over and over again. They, they're always kind of like uh, Siamese twins together. So uh, justice and righteousness. So these actually form a, a large makeup of the Old Testament. Um, believe it or not, this, it forms a large makeup of the actual teachings of Jesus. So these are not small topics to Jesus. They're not just uh, marginal notes that you can think about, um, possibly, if you f- are feeling up to it. These are exceptionally very, or these are very important ideas to the heart of God because it plays into how we think about our neighbor and who is our neighbor and how do we treat our neighbor. And to, uh, if you're daring enough, how do we treat our enemy, right? How do we treat someone that is actually done wrong towards us uh, intentionally, purposefully? Um, these are big subject matter to the Bible. And it all plays into this bigger question of justice and righteousness. One other thing I would say is that, again, as we have over the past few weeks, we have a Slido account going on. Uh, There's a brand new number there, 8126. So if you have questions about any of the subject matter that we're uh, trying to tackle today, please feel free to ask questions and or upvote. And uh, at the end, I'll I'll give a little bit of time to try to address some of those questions. Um, The other thing I would say is this, is uh, I've actually started recording some videos this past week that on a website or a Facebook page that we have, um, that's linked to our Calvary Slow Facebook page. I think it's just called The Image of God. Um, might end up changing its name at some point, but I recorded about four or five videos, and uh, I started answering, I uh, actually answered every single question that you guys asked, which was from like, I don't know, five weeks ago, so I'm about four weeks behind. So it's because you guys have asked around 50-plus questions. So thank you. Thank you for the response, but uh, you made my, my life really busy. Um, I still love you. You're, you're still my friend. Um, but I, I promise you, and I made a promise to you that I will answer all of them, and I will uh, continue to do that. So 
Um, whatever questions we don't get to today, I will definitely post up on uh, that page as well. So the meaning of justice. Let's, let's jump in this a little bit further. Okay, next slide. Uh, a few other things to think about before we jump in even further into this idea. So uh, within the pre-modern um, age, uh, most of which the Bible actually addresses, otherwise known as an agrarian culture, which means that for the most part, civilization was uh, founded within small communities, uh, small farming communities. That's how people earned a living. They made money. They would barter. A lot of it was a barter type of a system. So if you, know, you, you raised uh, cattle and someone else on the street raised you know, lettuce and or you know, uh, you know, vegetables or fruit, you'd barter with them. You'd trade with them. That's kind of how things would work. Or trade was a big, big issue. Um, there were people within that culture that would oftentimes um, not have the means to, uh, to, to work or to provide for themselves. And these would be kind of four major groups of people that would be recognized with no social power whatsoever, which means within society, it would be easy to forget about them because they have no voice. And this would be um, uh, widows, orphans, immigrants, and poor, poor in general. Um, sometimes um, the poor could involve all three of these. But this is kind of uh, how the Bible addresses and speaks to a lot of these people that Bible is filled with imagery and language that says, don't ever forget these people. Don't ever forget. In fact, um, there's all sorts of sociological studies that would actually point to the fact that in a lot of ways, um, the ancient Hebrews were given an incredible uh, societal um, concept, which was to, to never, it was a, basically a welfare system. And there were all sorts of things that God had designed to basically say, take care of those that are the most vulnerable within culture and society. Don't ever forget about them. In fact, God would even go so far as to say that if you, who have money and resources and power and land and wealth and means, uh, overlook and forsake uh, those that are widows, orphans, immigrants, poor, then God says, you have acted unjustly and I will take care of you. Uh, Oftentimes in the context of, I will show my judgment or justice towards you, and this is what we oftentimes see playing out throughout the Old Testament. So, next slide is uh, we also recognize within modern society that this list could also be expanded because if you kind of follow sort of a trajectory of the Bible, you recognize that a main idea that's trying to um, apply is who are the most vulnerable within culture and society. I think you can expand this to include refugees, uh, migrant workers, uh, the people that you know pick our uh, vegetables that oftentimes get forsaken, forgotten, yet they work hard. They're a very important part of culture and society at large, and yet easy to just simply forsake and forget. I think this would also involve homeless people, the unborn children, uh, prisoners, elderly, that oftentimes within our modern culture, because we have a society that's very focused upon youth and very focused on individual rights, that when someone becomes old, and no longer are a contributing member of society or the family, meaning they are worthless, literally worth less to people, we want to put them into a society or into a place where we don't have to think about them. And we call them old folks home, old folks home, in parentheses, um, in case you're listening to podcasts, because it's a way of just identifying how, within our culture, these types of people oftentimes just get relegated and forgotten within culture at large. Um, and so, and or single parents. Um, uh, those that have sort of the burden to carry a massive weight and yet oftentimes are easily forsaken and or forgotten. I think this list could be expanded to, to that as well. So let's, let's jump in and uh, ask uh, how the idea of uh, justice and righteousness kind of play into all this. So next slide. 
um, within some Jewish context, the idea of justice, which is, again, the Hebrew word mishpat. Um, According to one uh, Jewish source I was reading, uh, they described it as uh, retributive justice and then uh, tzedakah, which is also translated in most of the Bibles as righteousness. And again, most of the times, these these two words couple together. Uh, So you have uh, justice and righteousness, or righteousness and justice going together. So on the one hand, they describe it as retributive justice, meaning um, within the context of retribution, uh, that there is a law that all society is kind of ruled by or governed by, and within that context, that when disputes are raised, they're settled by way of uh, right, right rules, as opposed to might. Um, Now, within a good society and culture, that makes a heck of a lot of sense, it's far better than uh, tribalism, which means imagine in a society when you have a dispute with somebody, whoever has the biggest battle axe wins, right? Whoever has the biggest posse of angry brothers wins. So imagine if you don't have a big battle axe or you can't carry a big battle axe or you can't wear armor or you don't have money or you don't have a big family, meaning you are voiceless. But in a society that has laws, rules, and you're able to actually get form, some form of justice, this is, this is awesome. Like, again, much of society has ruled according to this rule of might makes right, as opposed to rules make right, right? You guys following so far? You guys doing okay? Good. All right, so if you think about uh, the idea of mishpat uh, in retributive justice, I, don't, I particularly don't like that phrase just because I think when we think of retribution, we think of, like, um, the green arrow, at least that's how I think of uh, retributive justice, the green arrow. Right? He's like a superhero. He goes out and kills bad guys. But again, there's, there's always, it's kind of fascinating to me, like studying uh, superhero shows because there's always sort of this, uh, this moment in their life when they're trying to decide, am, am I acting like one of the bad guys? Am I perhaps maybe one of the bad guys? How do I know? There's this loss of identity. And uh, retributive justice kind of puts the law entirely in the hand of the one that is uh, creating, you know, retribution. So I don't, I don't particularly like that idea, but I think the idea behind it is that there's, there's a law that governs all things, and we, we live according to that, as opposed to might, people with, again, big battle axes uh, doing what they think is right. So, and then the second one he describes, uh, this uh, Jewish scholar describes as uh, sadaqah, which is, uh, again, oftentimes translated righteousness. He describes it as distrib- distributive justice, the idea of giving away what you have. So within this context, if you think of it this way, it's uh, if you have goods, if you have money, if you have resources, if you have uh, time, if you have a you know, big house and an extra room or goods and you have the means of basically being able to help out somebody, um, then, then the idea is being able to be generous with what you have. Um, Tim Keller has written a great book. Why don't you show that um, slide real quick? of the? So this is a great resource if you're interested in it. Uh, it's called Generous Justice. Tim Keller had written a really great book on this. Um, there's a lot of great things to think about and dig through and consider. Um, but he describes basically this combination of uh, mishpat, uh, which is translated justice, and tzedakah, which is translated righteousness. When these two come together, he describes it as generous justice. I like that idea, that God's actually creating a community of people that have generous justice. Generous justice. They're generous with what they have. When they see people in need, they come together, they figure out ways, they innovate, are creative. How can we help each other out? When somebody has a setback, they figure out innovate, innovative, creative ways to help that person get back into a position of uh, stability and being able to take care of themselves and so on and so forth. So generous justice. It's not done by way of a project, like 
let's, let's, how can we do our nice deeds today so that we can make ourselves feel better about ourselves? That's not generous justice. Generous justice is a quality of person that says, I want to do good to others because God has overwhelmingly done good to me. God loves me. I want to love others. God has shown grace and kindness to me. I want to show grace and kindness to others. That's radically different than religious observance that says, my religion tells me to be generous with my money, so i got to give it away, because that's what my religion teaches me. That's radically different. It's a radically different type of a person, radically different quality of person than what we're talking about. So the last thing I want to take a look at, if we can go back to the other slide, is the subject that we hadn't really talked about yet is the subject of shalom. So if you want to think of it this way, um, mishpat and tzedakah, or justice and righteousness, they take a shape. There is a form or foundation beneath those two words that begin to kind of give shape and tangibility to what they're going to do. And this is the word shalom. Now, this is a massive word that kind of forms much of the entire Bible. Uh, In other words, you can even ask it this way. Like, what is God up to in this world? I think the answer you can state is shalom. That's what God's up to. Like, if you want to answer one word, it's shalom. Shalom involves reconciliation. Shalom involves healing. Shalom involves reordering. Uh, involves all of the, it involves new life, new creation. That's what shalom involves. But what is shalom? So this is the form beneath the form. So I'll, I'll let um, Tim Keller, he has some great things to say about this. I'll just read a couple quotes from him that are really powerful, I think. Just listen to it. He says this, that God created the world to be a fabric. I like how he describes this, uh, to be a fabric. He says, for everything to be woven together and interdependent. Neil Plantiga, he's a theologian, he puts it like this. The webbing together of God humans, and all creation in equity, fulfillment, and delight. This is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. So just in case you missed that, listen to it again. The webbing together, the webbing together, coming together, of, uh, of God, humans, and all creation. God, creator, humans, his image bears, and all creation. All things. All plants, all animals, all society, everything, he says. The webbing together of all of these things together uh, where am I at here? I have no idea where I'm at. Uh, okay, uh, for equity, fulfillment, and delight. This is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We translate this peace. But in the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. Uh, it describes a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied, natural gifts are faithfully and fruitfully employed, all under the ark of God's love. Next slide. He goes on, he says, here's an illustration of shalom. If I throw a thousand, or if I threw a thousand threads under a table, uh, they wouldn't be a fabric. So again, I just I love this image. So imagine uh, each one of you guys re- are represented by are represented by a thread. So let's just say, for example, uh, multiply that by you know seven billion people upon planet Earth, and there's seven billion threads. Multiply that by however many humans live throughout all human history, billions and billions and billions. Let's just say, for example, of threads on this table. You don't have a tapestry. You have a mound of threads, uh, a.k.a. you've got chaos, all right? You've got just pure, utter chaos. There's nothing really intrinsically beautiful or awesome or amazing about that mound of threads. But he goes on to say, um, they'd be threads laying on top of each other. Threads become a fabric when each has been woven together under and around, through uh, every other one. The more interdependent they are, the more beautiful they are, the more interwoven They are the stronger and the warmer they are. God made the world with billions of entities. 
And he didn't make them to be an aggregation. Rather, he made them to be a beautiful, harmonious, knitted, webbed, interdependent relationship with each other. This is the idea. And yet what we have in today's world is there's a lot of fraying. You have a lot of individuals wanting to make much of themselves. You've got 7 billion individuals wanting to make much of themselves. And what happens is you've got chaos. We have a world full of threads, not a whole lot of interwovenness, not a whole lot of shalom. And what God is up to in this world is bringing about shalom. How does one go about this work? How does one begin to see this work beginning to be actuated within this world? Uh, To put it more sharply, how do we become a community of people that actually care for the poor, the impoverished, the forgotten, the marginalized, the unborn, um, uh, the, the widow, the elderly? How do we become one that cares about the immigrant, the field worker? How do we become that community of people? This is what the Bible cares about. So a lot of times, this is where, in some cases, we tend to think the Bible, all it cares about is you getting to heaven. I would say that's a horribly truncated view of how Scripture deals with itself and how it deals with us, that God actually cares far more than you can imagine about this creation that he loves, that he created, that he articulated, that he spoke into being, and yet has gone horribly awry. That God cares about all things material, and therefore we should as well, and, but in a proper order. And this is what we see that God is up to right now. So again, the biblical word for this is shalom. Shalom is sort of the foundation. It's the framework by which uh, justice and righteousness are then kind of built upon. So let's jump in and look at some practical uh, scriptural examples of this. And that's where I'm going to move on to the next thing. Uh, this is the significance of justice, the significance of justice. I want to read uh, two main passages, and there's a handful of other pas- passages um, I'll just make allusion to. Um, right now, you can write these down if you want, like Matthew chapter 25, verses 41 to 46. Jesus talks about justice there. Proverbs uh, 14, 31 Proverbs 19, 17, I'll just read those. It says, whoever oppresses the poor insults his maker. But he who is generous, the word generous is a fantastic word. It's the word kovad. Um, it's, it's another word that's translated throughout the Old Testament as, as, uh, as glory. So what he's actually saying here is, is whoever is generous, whoever shows worthiness, weightiness to his neighbor, even though he might be a homeless guy or he's poor, uh, he's saying that when someone elevates that person, shows a sense of weightiness, value, substance to somebody that would otherwise just simply be a forgotten within culture, uh, he says actually honors his maker. Think about that. That's powerful. That's in the Old Testament. That's not, the, that's not even the New Testament yet. It's not even the book of James. You can read the book of James. It's filled with allusions to these Old Testament passages that God wants to raise in awareness. So let me read these to you, and then uh, we'll just make some comments. Isaiah chapter 1 Uh, starts off with these statements. God's writing to the people of Israel that uh, he designed uh, for them to be a community of people that would live according to his ways. That in living in partnership, or the word for that is covenant, covenantal relationship with God, they they would obey God, they would love God, they would serve God, and thereby they would also love God's people. Um, And they would even love those that weren't God's people. People that God describes as wanderers that come in from all of the other territories and come into your land. God says, treat them as if they are your blood. That's the, do you realize that's the exact opposite of uh, patriotism? Or it's the exact opposite of nationalism? It's the exact opposite of tribalism? God is literally saying, show generosity and kindness to even those that are not part of your blood. That's powerful. 
and what God is describing to the people of Israel is that um, you guys have, have forsaken all this, but you've continued in religious activity. Here's what the prophet Isaiah says about this. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my face from you. This is God speaking. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds uh, from before my eyes and cease to do evil. Learn to do good. And this is here where God says, here's our word mishpat, seek justice. So the question is, what are we supposed to do with regard to this idea or concept of justice? Well, God says, pursue it, seek it. Let it become something that you cherish, you value, you, you seek after it, you pursue it with all your heart. God says, seek after it. And he says, um, he goes on to say, correct oppression. This is kind of an interesting way. So this is an idea of of saying, look, if there are systemic situations within culture that are actually adding oppression and marginalizing and adding a destructiveness to those that are already under the weight of uh, being marginalized or broken or weak or unvalued, God says, uh, get rid of those oppressive structures. Change the structure change the societal uh, structures that are there in place so that it would accommodate and take care of those that for the most part are being crushed by the weight of societies or society's expectations at large. He says, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause, and then some of you are probably familiar with the next passage, it says in verse 18, come now, let us reason together, thus says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow, even though they're red as crimson, they'll become white as wool. It's kind of a fascinating passage, what God is basically saying here is he's actually telling them, like, why are you coming to church, raising your hands, singing to me, praying to me, and yet there's blood on them? That's the image. The image is that you guys are aware of the fact that there are those within culture and society at large, within your society, that are being oppressed, and yet you are not using the resources and the goods and the money and the know-how and the ingenuity that you have to help alleviate the suffering and the pain of those around you. And yet you keep continuing, coming to church, raising your hand, singing to me. God's like, why are you doing that? It doesn't make any sense to me. Like you, 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 the, the point is, is that you, you're claiming to love me, and yet there's radical inconsistencies. All right, so some of us might say, well, that's the Old Testament. What does the New Testament say? Um, it actually gets a little bit more shocking, all right? Um, the book of James has some really powerful, strong words. But I'll borrow from the book of 1 John, because the book of 1 John has some insightful things to say. And John says this. He says, how can you, he's talking to Christians, um, people that are part of God's covenant, people that have been shown kindness and love and care, people who have been reached into the margins, because that's where we lived, was in the margins of God, and God reached out to us. He says, how can you claim to love God if you cannot see? All right, think about that. We make this radical claim. If you're a follower of Jesus, have you ever thought about this? When you, your confession is, I love God, and people are like, well, where is he? Uh, you can't see him. Are you, are you kidding me? You love something you don't see? How is that possible? And then John goes on to say, you claim to love God who you cannot see, and yet you don't help, you despise your brother who you do see. His whole point in stating this is that there's uh, incongruities, oftentimes in what we confess and what we say and what we proclaim and how we actually live. What he's really saying is that you, we are actually proving that there are you know, the word that he uses is lie. We actually lie when we claim to love God, and yet we don't love and serve and care those who we do see. And the reason why is because 
those who we do see bear God's image. This, again, goes back to Genesis 1. Why is there value and dignity and worth intrinsic to your life? The answer, because you bear God's image. You matter. You're valuable. God cares about you. And so should those who claim to love God. So, as he goes on to kind of unwrap this, I'm going to read in Isaiah chapter 58. This is a little bit more of a lengthy passage, and I'll just kind of read through it quickly um, and make some comments and statements as we do. This gets a little bit more uh, profound. Here's what he says. Cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their transgressions, their sins, to the house of Jacob, their sins, Uh, yet they seek me daily, and they delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake judgment or justice, uh, in other words, tzedakah and mishpat, or righteousness and justice, uh, before the God. He says, uh, and they ask of me righteous judgment. They delight to draw near to me. Uh, then God's basically setting the stage. He's like, look, you on every level as an outward show are awesome. All right, you go to church, you pray, you fast, you make sure you go to holidays, you do all these religious activities. So when you're at church, you're the ones raising your hands, you're the ones praying the loudest, you're the one doing evangelism. He's like, so the reality is that you guys are calling upon my name and you're calling upon my justice and my righteousness. You want me to act justly and righteous towards you, but and you're acting as if you're a community of people that are living according to righteousness and justice to others. But then God says, here's the problem. You, why have we fasted? And why do we not see? Why have we humbled ourselves and yet you have no knowledge of it? He says, behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. So God's basically saying, you're a community of people that are constantly asking. God, we're praying, but we're not seeing any progress. We're not seeing any answers. We're constantly praying for you to answer our prayers. You never answer our prayers. Why are you not answering our prayers? And God says, here's the reason. Why am I not answering your prayers? Every time you pray, it hits a ceiling. And I don't hear it. I don't listen to it. It's pretty profound. He says, behold, you fast only to quarrel or to fight and to argue. He says, and to hit with the wicked your fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. In such is such the fast that I choose. A day for a person to humble himself is to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him. Will you call this a fast, a, a day that's acceptable before the Lord? And then God goes on to say that, look, at the end of the day, the way that you're praying to me, even though you're doing all this religious activity and you're fasting and you're praying and doing all these things, God says... The problem is there's no progress, and I'm not listening to you. But what I really want you to do, so again, here's here's where the insertion of God's real true motivation, God's real true desire, God's real true purpose is. He's saying, here's what I really want to break forth from you. It's not just religious activity, not tithes, not money, not service, none of these things. What I really want, he says in verse 6, is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness and to undo the straps of the yoke to let the oppressed go free to break every yoke uh, is this not is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you are when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring forth up uh, speedily your righteousness shall go before you and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard then he goes on to say, he says, then 
you shall call, and the Lord will then answer. You shall cry, and he will say to you, here I am. So what God is basically saying is that the problem is, is your priorities are all messed up. You are looking for religious activity. God's saying, I'm not interested in religious activity. I'm looking for you to love the poor, to love those that are oppressed, to figure out ways to break the societal structures that are crushing, that are oppressing, that are ruining, that are destructive, that are disruptive to their shalom. That's what God's up to. Looking for ways to try to figure out how to alleviate the suffering and the hurt and the pain, how to restore dignity, value, and respect to those that have lost it. For whatever reason. Because they live in a society where there's a bunch of rich people and maybe they're poor and because they're poor they don't fit in. Or maybe they're in a society where everyone's really good looking and they're not that good looking and so therefore they don't fit in. Or maybe everyone in that society is young and vibrant and they're older and feeling a little bit more decrepit and so therefore they don't fit in. Or maybe they're older and they feel as if they have this sense of frustration towards those that are younger. Whatever the case is, God says what I really want if I can put it in the most simplest terms, is for you to get along, to care for each other, to use the gifts that I've given you to be shared with others, to care, to love, to serve, to help, to come alongside. God says, that's when I will show my grace in profound ways that will break forth. He goes on to say in this passage that your light will break forth like the dawn. It's these amazing images that God describes. So, what I want to finish with is this question. So, how do we become people who practice justice? Now, up until this point, some of you might be feeling this overwhelming sense of guilt and shame hanging over you right now. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I would imagine much of us are just like, that's me, I'm a failure, I'm a loser, I've not done a good job with this. So, what I would suggest, as a pastor for me, it's really easy for me to manipulate audiences of people, and I've done this in the past, Right? I, don't, I, I hope to never do it, but I, I confess, all right? pastoral confessions. I've definitely done this maybe in light ways in the past. But manipulation and guilt and shame work. But they don't work forever. They don't bring about true, lasting healing or wholeness. What guilt and shame don't do is that guilt and shame never can actually transform your heart. It can modify your behavior. It can modify your actions. It can get you to do things because that's what guilt and shame does momentarily. But guilt and shame will never transform you into somebody that is living evidence of generous justice. You will never become an overwhelmingly generous, kind, gentle person by guilt and shame. So what does? That's what I want to finish on. So, last slide, I want to read a couple quotes again from uh, Tim Keller. He says this. He says, when you look at Matthew 25, which is the other passage I didn't read, but you can read it in your own time, Isaiah 1, Isaiah 58, it's easy to miss the point. It's easy to think to yourself, here's God, Jesus, and Isaiah, and they're all saying, worship ordinances, check. All right, got all the worship ordinances down, check, I'm all good. Personal morality, check. I'm doing good, I'm not shocking up with anybody, good. Uh, number three, social justice. How am I doing on that area? Ah, I'm failing in that area. You don't have that one down. He says, ah, you say to yourself, my list wasn't long enough. And if I add charity, then God will answer my prayers. Then he'll give me the life that I want. Next slide. He finishes and he says, it's, that, uh, it's, it's what you think 
you have missed the point. If, if that's what you think, you've missed the point. This is a critique of that kind of religion. It's a critique of people who are trying to pressure, to put pressure on God, saying, we've lived a good life, and now you owe us. That kind of thinking does nothing to change the fundamental self-centeredness of the heart. You're being good out of total self-absorption. You haven't changed the heart at all. How can you get to the place where you obey God or where we obey God and love the poor and do good for God's sake alone? It's a great question. And one final thing I'll say before I wrap this up. Much of us, since we were really young, we're actually trained to live obedient, be obedient kids with a particular uh, mentality. And here's oftentimes the way that we are trained by mom and dad. It's, it's not always necessarily mom and dad's fault because mom and dad were probably trained this way themselves. But here's a way that we were oftentimes shaped to think about morality is that we were basically told from a very young age, don't be a bad person because nobody likes bad people. You don't want to be a person that nobody likes, do you? So why do we be good? Because I don't want to be hated. I don't want to be that kid that everybody hates. The flip side is we're told, don't do bad things, because if you do bad things, you're going to end up in jail and be a bad person. So don't be a bad person. So on that respect, why do we not do bad things? Because fear. So fear and self-centeredness are two radical motivating factors that have oftentimes shaped your morality of how you think about doing what is right and how you avoid doing what is wrong. Does that make sense? Guilt and shame or self-absorption and guilt uh, or fear at the end of the day will not produce a character, a heart, a motor, an engine, an inner drive that is actually reflective of the nature of God. All it may do is create behavior that looks good on the outside, but inside you are still got the cancer. You still have the disease. You're not changed. But what God is up to is making all things new. What God is up to is into making you a brand new person that thinks in a radically new, different type of a way. So the question is, how does God do this? And this is where we have to look at who God is. Why would God call people to live justly and righteous? Because, fundamentally, this is the nature of who God is. God is a God that even though he has infinite power, infinite worth and value and wealth and infinite beauty. I mean, think about this. Power, uh, wealth, and beauty. If you have those right now, you have collateral in today's culture. You understand that? If you are beautiful, you can go far in today's society. You don't even have to be smart. You can just go very far if you have insane beauty. If you are extremely ugly but have a lot of money, you can go really far if you are extremely ugly and extremely uh, not very smart, but you have a lot of wealth, you can go very far. These things, wealth, power, and beauty, are part of the collateral of today's world, the currency of what makes people great. All of these things, God possesses an infinite value. And all of them, we see that we have a God that rather than running from the sin and the brokenness of this world actually allows himself to come into this world through Christ. And his infinite beauty is marred into ugliness beyond belief and comprehension. His wealth was radically redistributed and given away so that uh, 2 Corinthians says that though he was rich, he became poor for us. And though he had infinite power, we see him nailed to the cross. God, infinite God, 
nailed, transfixed. Why? Love. He loves you. Do you see the image of that? Love, beauty will radically change you to the degree you see that that is the good news. That no matter how broken and messed up and ruined and marginalized and far off you are from God, he still has come into this world to give all to rescue you. Love will change you. Love will change this world to the degree that we believe that storyline, that narrative. It will transform our hearts. That's the good news, that you're invited to receive. If you're a Christian, to receive it afresh. If you're not a Christian, to receive it brand new. But let it change our hearts to become people that now we live freed lives so that we could love all people, the poor, the marginalized, the unborn, all the way to the elderly that are forgotten, all the way to the immigrant, the field worker, whoever, because we have a God that was never put off by your ugliness, by your baseness, by your brokenness. He loves us. And that gospel transforms us. So, it's always an invitation. What I'm going to do right now, I want to finish. I want to read a quote, and I'll finish with praying, and then we'll try to answer a couple questions uh, from you guys, and then uh, we'll sing a couple songs to close with. Sound good? This is the quote. It's from a guy by the name of... What's his name? It's that guy. You know him, right? Just kidding. John Stott. John Stott. Listen to what John Stott says. He says uh, in a book called The Cross of Christ. I don't have it up there, so just listen to it. He says, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one that Nietzsche ridiculed as the God on the cross. In the real world of pain, one could... Uh, how could one worship a God who is totally immune to pain? The God I worship, that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails in his hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intoler- intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered into our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. This, there's still a question mark against the human question of suffering. But over and beyond that is stamped another mark, the cross, which symbolizes divine suffering alongside of human suffering. This is the picture of a God that is constantly inviting us to trust him, to follow him, and to be shaped by him. That's the type of people we want to be. Not just simply people that do religious duties, and live according to religious activity, but people that fundamentally are radically changed by the love of God. So, I'm going to pray. We'll try to answer a couple questions, and we'll sing. Is that cool? God, we thank you for your love that transforms us, changes us, is constantly inviting us to become different people. God, you know our hearts. You know the areas that we struggle God, you know the areas that you want to heal. And we come to you and we ask you, Father, that you would just continue to transform and reshape us to becoming people who truly bear the image of God in this world. 
So God, help me now to uh, try to answer some questions as best as I can uh, in this time frame. And God, I pray that it brings some level of, of peace and understanding for those that, that have asked. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.